Hey everyone, it's me, Ken Bone, and I am delighted to tell you about the Michael and Us podcast starring your old friends Luke Savage and Will Sloan. Every week, Luke and Will will take a deep dive into political cinema and culture, reminding you of the people and things from past election cycles that you might have forgotten about. Like me. While also casting a sideways glance at the news of today. So if you're interested in politics, culture, and this crazy world we live in, you're going to love Michael and Us. So don't forget to subscribe on Patreon for exclusive members-only content. Well, thank you to our U.S. correspondent, Ken Bone, for that endorsement. I think that's maybe the biggest get we've ever had on the podcast, right? Welcome to Michael and Us. My name is Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. Uh, You may be wondering how we landed the big Ken Bone endorsement. (laughs) Well, uh, last week, Luke and I were hanging out. He heard our episode, Ken Bone of People's History, became a fan. Finally, somebody gets me. (laughs) Luke and I were hanging out last week, uh, a non-podcast hangout. Yeah, we do do those every so often. I'll just reiterate, Will and I were friends before we decided to... uh, cynically monetize our friendship and yeah we met to try to bury the hatchet you know try try to put aside all the inevitable squabbles and (laughs) hatreds that develop in a business relationship yeah we got a real john paul thing going on it was time to kind of uh, melt some of the ice and we got a little tipsy and we started going on cameo as you do And trying to see, okay, yeah, who are the celebrities on Cameo? Is there anybody in our universe, anybody who's kind of Michael and us adjacent who is also affordable? For, for, the, for those who don't, I think we need to walk this back a little bit. For those who don't know, Cameo is, uh, is an app where you can basically pay celebrities to you know record little personal messages for you. Yeah. And they go from the, the cheaper end of the spectrum, you know. Five bucks is probably yeah, a, a few bob up to, uh, up to what, like. Fifteen hundred. I think 2, uh, Kevin O'Leary goes for almost a thousand bucks. They're never. I mean, in some the murderer Kevin O'Leary <laughs> alleged. <laughs> um, that was satire, by the way. I'm not actually <laughs> accusing him. It's his wife who's accused of murder. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, the the pricing is pretty interesting, and and it's also funny because. I mean, you can't you can't just get anyone on Cameo. Before we looked at it, I was sort of under the impression of like, you know, I'm sure you can get, you know, if you wanted to get like Kim Kardashian and you had five K, George you know, 5, Clooney, or, Matt yeah, Damon. Yeah, but none of those people are on there. So yeah, so I've just logged on and so for fifty one bucks you can get Perez Hilton. Not Paris Hilton, but Perez. Fifty one dollars? Fifty one. I don't know why the one. Huh. Oh. Gilbert Gottfried is hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, Chris Hansen from The Bachelor, he's fifty dollars. Michael Rappaport. $150. Okay, but give us some of the big names. I believe uh, Joshua Molina from the West Wing, also the West Wing podcast, I think he was one of the priciest ones. I've just sorted it from high to low, and the most expensive one, for $2,500, you can get a greeting from Caitlyn Jenner. Okay. Uh, Marlon Wayans is 1000 I hadn't heard of most of them, even the pricier ones. Charlie Sheen is $550. Mm-hmm. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is $500. Hey, look at this. Wesley Snipes, $500. That may be worth it, actually. But if you folks are, you know, you're hearing this list of names, uh, you can go through it yourself on, on Cameo.com. None of these people are really part of the Michael and Us universe, at least uh, not yet. But we did eventually find Mr. Ken Bone, and he very graciously uh, recorded a really nice uh, little promo for us, which you heard off the top there. So honest, non-ironic, heartfelt thanks to Ken Bone for uh, putting that together for us. So speaking of that sideways glance at the news that (laughs) Ken Bone was referring to, I gotta say, I've got Joker fever. (laughs) 
the Smilex gas has infiltrated the apartment, and I, too, have a big Jack Nicholson grin. Yeah, soon we're going to have to admit Will to the Arkham Asylum, folks. <laughs> For a long time, I was anti-Joker, but now, because I have a bit of a contrarian nature, I'm pro-Joker. I, too, am the party man. There's been so much talk over the last two weeks about is Joker dangerous? Is Joker making society twisted? Are the incels out there going to identify too strongly with this with this clown man? And perhaps <laughs> take him as their role model, go out and do violence. Uh-huh. Is there going to be a shooting on opening day of the Joker? This is something that people are very seriously concerned about. What do you what do you make of this, Will? I'm guessing you disagree. Well, I do disagree because it, it seems so much like those moral panics that people used to have in the '90s, like uh, evangelicals having panics about Marilyn Manson. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in the '90s, um, those were kind of grounded in in the kind of the conservative yeah. part of American culture, and now I feel like they're more associated with with the liberal uh, it, sort of culturally. It, it, it certainly seems so. I mean, like. Back in the 90s, you would hear conservatives rallying against the National Endowment of the Arts because, you know, the guy who made the Piss Christ right. art got right. some funding. And mind you, uh, quote unquote, cancel culture still exists on the right very much so. All you have to do is ask Colin Kaepernick about that. But something I've noticed in a lot of critical response to the Joker and a lot of moral panic surrounding it is that joker is a cultural phenomenon that's now like linked with the incels mm-hmm. uh, who who are the bad when, when the bad did, people when did that happen i feel like it sort of happened in the last 10 years when like heath ledger's joker got sort of memefied by kind of reddit or alt-right type people but... i think i was aware of that so that's part of the sort of like iconography that includes like pepe and things like oh that. definitely right? yeah. yeah because like joker is a character who like he's twisted he's dark but you know he sort of makes a weird sick sort of sense yeah you know? <laughs> It's but like, this, this it's is, like if, if if a gangbanger dies, well, that's all part of the plan. But if I kill a mayor, everybody loses their mind. <laughs> Incidentally, I watched Suicide Squad for the oh, first beautiful film. what I can assure you will be the only time a few weeks ago. And my God, that the Jared Leto character is so like overwrought. It's amazing how hyped that role was well, considering he, how what a unbelievably shitty movie they got out of it. He worked very hard. Uh, I'm sure he did. But the, he worked very hard to deliver lines like, uh, you know, I'm not a person to be loved. Yeah. I'm a state of mind. But the Joker discourse, I think, really hit its apotheosis this week when Todd Phillips, the not very bright director of the Joker movie, uh, that's my judgment. I, yeah. don't, I don't know him personally. I base this off his public statements. I think you can get away with that one. Uh, he said something along the lines of, how come everybody's going after my Joker movie when the same people are laughing and cheering at John Wick? He's a guy who kills 300 people right. in a movie. And honestly, I gotta say, I think he's got a point. But did you, you see know? the other thing he said about he where he was tying the the criticism to the quote unquote far left? Oh yeah, because you know what I like about that is so for one thing, if he actually cared about you know distancing himself from these accusations, uh-huh. that's the exact opposite language he should be using. It's like if people are are like your film is a crypto alt-right pro-incel movie. Uh-huh. That's not the language to use to dispel that, which in fact makes me think that this is kind of like 
you know, it's, it's kind of a marketing gimmick. They're leaning into this moral, this kind of silly moral panic around the film to get people to think, oh, actually, this thing is really dark and you should go see it because it's, it's totally twisted. Oh, ab- absolutely. And, you know, I think this speaks to Todd Phillips's limits as a filmmaker. And this goes all the way back to his early career. I'm kind of a Todd Phillips scholar, <laughs> you understand. Uh, even his, his classic Gigi Allen documentary, there's no kind of politics to it. He's kind of an incels, what a concept filmmaker. You know, that's the depth of his thinking. So the thing about the John Wick, I saw so many people saying like, um, um, actually, John Wick is a good movie and Joker's a bad movie. So checkmate Todd Phillips. I like the John Wick movies, but they're they're fun. Yeah, yeah, they're fun. But they're also like they totally fetishize violence. They totally fetishize violence guns. is what's so much fun about them. Yeah, yeah. So like, let's not pretend they're on some like great moral high ground well, above the Joker. If movie. you if you're actually going to argue that depiction of something in a film is going to cause people to do it. Who do you think the people would want as their role model? The incel Joker or John Wick, the cool assassin? But think about, you actually adopt that view, how many films just become, like, irredeemable. Oh, sure, And how much of culture just becomes irredeemable. And how censurious you would have to become in order to stop the epidemics of violence that are following because people are watching like Keanu Reeves beat a bunch of bad guys up. Yeah, so what you see are people like bending over backwards to say, oh no, the thing that I like is yeah. actually morally fine, uh-huh. but the thing that the dirty incels, the the bad Redditors, the people who vote for Donald Trump like, right. that's right. bad. Right, so very... that's dangerous right, too. Right, so various forms of sort of dueling cultural gatekeeping yeah. are happening here, and, and it's all bad. If there's something that joker has taught us it's that everything is shades of gray there are no heroes and villains <laughs> so we we may actually yeah we may actually go see, i mean it's so funny yeah, we're having not? this conversation without even having like seen the movie yeah um i personally I feel like i've seen it at this point <laughs> i expect i mean i feel like the movie's almost kind of secondary at this point and maybe we'll do an episode yeah, on it at, at some point why not and even a kindergarten mind could have anticipated your every move This caper was even more obvious than most. Oh, you can say that over the phone, Batman, but if I had you here, I'd pound you to a pulp! So before we get to the topic for this week's episode, I did just, uh, I wanted to get a little bit of business out of the way. First of all, this is a a regular uh, episode, one of the free episodes. Uh, For those who don't know um, and who aren't on our Patreon already, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Michael and Us. You can get two extra episodes a month. We kind of alternate them every other week. We sometimes also do kind of extra non-canonical bonus episodes. We throw those up when we can. And because I always forget to do it, uh, please rate and review the podcast on whatever app you're you're listening to us on. Uh, apparently it helps the algorithm so more people can see the show. So a few thank yous are in order. Will brought up Reddit a moment ago uh, in connection to the Joker. We actually uh, made an appearance on the popular Chapo Trap House subreddit recently, our 9-11 episode, which I think is actually one of our most popular episodes, which we did with our friend Alex Ross. Um, I'm not sure how long ago. It feels like... Probably over a year. Ages ago. Yeah. yeah, that was sort of, you know, I think in the sort of Michael and Us season two era. Yeah. That's up on the Chapo uh, Trap House subreddit. If you search Michael and Us, you should be able to find it. There's an exciting conversation there explaining why, in <laughs> fact, George Bush did cause 9-11. <laughs> there's, there's 157 comments, some of which seem to be um, just just about... Uh, and I'm convinced yeah. now. Uh-huh. Is, yeah. Uh, and, and be- lock them up. And be- be- before we get into those, uh, there's a thank you in order because... Because uh, there's somebody that I know only as a psychotic Michael and Us fan who I gather had some hand in, in this and, and who's been helping promote the show. 
Um, so a really big thank you to psychotic Michael and us fan who will be in order for some free swag if ever the show gets to a point where uh, we can afford to <laughs> give away free swag. So the, the sticky comment at the top here, which uh, I guess uh, they left, just to be clear, this is a great podcast, which you should listen to. It started off as a podcast where the hosts watch Michael Moore movies and critique them with the utmost level of intellect and wit. They are former fans of Michael Moore oeuvre who after advanced graduate studies in political science, journalism, and film criticism were able to critique these movies and expose them for the lib garbage they truly are. Oh. It's very harsh on Michael Moore. Um, <laughs> but uh, I suppose we, we sort of had that coming. Uh, after they were done with Michael Moore movies, they have continued to examine cinema that encapsulates the mood and zeitgeist of the late 90s and post-9-11 era. These fine, young, strapping gentlemen are the premier film critics of our age. Will Sloan reminds me of a more politically astute Gene Siskel, while Luke Savage has the aura of a slightly less racist William F. Buckley. I think you got the better end of the stick there. I do agree that you're less racist than William F. Buckley. I'm glad we can at least agree on that. Uh, Unfortunately, the hosts aren't woke enough to realize that Bush knocked down them towers. Uh, but they have a very interesting conversation on the subject of conspiracy theories in general. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of uh, lot of fun on here. A lot of uh, you know, there's a, a, a dizzying conversation going on. One comment: Will Sloan's Important Cinema Club is the best movie podcast around. Also, this thread is a beautiful mess. I love you, Night Crew. Right on both counts. My favorite comment, which has uh, 14 points, was edited uh, last edited 19 hours ago, which is immaculately sourced and is just uh, trying to debunk the official story of 9-11 so uh i confess i haven't uh, gone through that in, in great detail but that's up here for I'm those i'm sure the commenter knows more about the subject than i do yeah so once again thank you to um a psychotic michael and us fan for that a few more thank yous in order uh for those not on our patreon we have a pretty active community there and uh, a lot of you have been sending in uh, suggestions there's some really good ones um, I wanted to thank a few people specifically. James Waters put together a list which uh, both suggests that uh, you know he knows us as well as we know ourselves and uh, that he has a, a terminal case of Michael and us brain. This is a really great list of suggestions there. Thanks, James. Elias Brander is someone else who's been leaving a lot of good suggestions and comments. We actually have so many films to work with at this point. You know, I think there have been times when Will and I have uh, been doing this, particularly back in the day when we were transitioning sort of away from the Michael Moore over into kind of more general territory where we thought, well, you know, what if we run out of stuff? Like, how many more of these can there be? Mm -hmm. Um, But when I go onto the Patreon and there are suggestions like this one from Ralph, uh, which is James Woods in the Rudy Giuliani story uh, (laughs) as Rudy Giuliani, I know that we'll never run out. (laughs) I know that the 90s and the early and mid-2000s produced just an endless trove of of absolute schlock for us to go to (laughs) in between occasionally talking about things that we really like. And there are many other suggestions. Someone suggested the show Veep, Parks and Recreation have come up a few times. If you've made a suggestion, we haven't uh, responded or uh, we haven't done it on the show yet. Fear not, we'll try to get to these. Uh, Eventually, we really appreciate all the suggestions and feedback, so thank you very much. There was one other question on here, a kind of a lengthy question about anti-anti-theism on the left. Uh, We're not going to deal with it in detail this week, but I did want to thank the listener because it's a good question. Basically, the, the crux of the question, which I'll read properly, I think, next week, is the stereotype of the teenage atheist seems to be something that's looked at negatively by the left which is a phenomenon I don't quite understand. You know, basically, I've encountered this genre of question before, and it's, it's a fair question, 
It's one I get asked a lot because of, you know, the writing I've done kind of critiquing the new atheist movement. The listener writes, what I don't understand is why so many people on the left who espouse revolutionary beliefs about every other aspect of society seem to passively accept the role of religion in politics and culture. So I think we'll just leave that as a little uh, teaser here. It's a, it's a good question, one I'm looking forward to discussing hopefully next week. So thank you to uh, Ligma who left that comment. Oh, also we have a brand new Twitter account. Finally, I'm actually ashamed <laughs> coming to Michael and us nation. <laughs> at this late date with a Twitter account, but it is at Michael and us. We've got 111 followers currently. So Not bad. You, you could be follower 112. And you can see Ken Bone deliver that <laughs> beautiful endorsement. And uh, regarding what you said about anti-theism, mm-hmm. uh, my response to that is, ooh, ooh, uh, talking snake. <laughs> ooh, God's not real. Bloody hell. <laughs> topic of our episode this week is the BBC series The Office, which I think it's safe to say uh, upon revisiting, you know, Will and I are 30 now and I think we both first encountered the show, I mean, what, at age about 15? About 15 yeah, I was ago. in grade 12. Yeah. So, so you know, before, uh, you know, late teens, early and mid 20s, before, uh, you know, kind of really experiencing the world that it's depicting and i think it's safe to say we had a bit of a different experience of it Um, i feel like every age i watch this show it gets a little different Mm -hmm. and i think we both agreed that it was darker this time. much darker so just to kind of uh you know set the stage for this you know the office is obviously a depiction of what is in many ways the quintessential you know modern work experience and as more and more people kind of work uh, behind desks in various levels of precarity for large companies doing retail working in the service sector I think the depiction of modern workplace culture in the show only becomes more and more poignant and I want to read a little bit before we talk about the show from a Telegraph article uh, from January of 2016 it's called why do I need to love a company to work there Um, is by Abby Wilkinson. Minimum wage employers are now acting like cults who demand our hearts and souls as well as just our time. It's obsessive and frankly sinister. So I want to read a little bit from this. Taking their cue from the USA, a country that has truly led the way in pushing employment relations to their dystopian limits, many British companies are starting to demand far more from staff than the efficient and courteous performance of basic role requirements. Increasingly, they're also seeking to control their hearts and minds. I've lost count of the number of anecdotes I've heard about employers that seem to operate more like cults. Through a combination of jargon-laden propaganda about corporate values and humiliating, infantilizing activities, senior managers attempt to mold compliant, dedicated customer service atrons whose work becomes their central purpose in life. One individual described getting an absolute bollocking for refusing to draw in color in a coat of arms, quote, representing the organization values and team values. Another told me they were forced to sing a company song and reprimanded for failing to participate enthusiastically enough. At group interviews for a major UK supermarket chain, all candidates are required to perform a dance routine and chant for the approval of would-be bosses. The purpose seems to be to discover which potential employees are most cheerful about submitting, without question, to any arbitrary demand placed upon them. 
A book published in 2012 by the U.S.-born chairman of Metro Bank lays out his psychological approach to management in chilling detail. It explains how the company goes to significant lengths to, quote, deprogram new employees and claims that, quote, it doesn't take new hires long to see that our philosophy is much more than a corporate mission statement. It's a way of life. Apparently, this is supposed to be inspirational rather than utterly terrifying. You hardly have to be a raving lefty to see a problem with companies attempting to exercise increasing control over the mental and emotional state of their employees. In many ways, then, it's reassuring that it rarely seems to work as intended. I've never spoken to anyone who feels anything other than patronized and resentful of corporate brainwashing mm-hmm. efforts. So if, if you've ever worked in the service industry at all, as I think you know, most of us have, all, you know, all of this is something you can, uh, you can relate to. There are certainly some companies that are more successful at it, though. You hear about companies like Google mm-hmm. um, that have cultivated this very like, hey, we're a cool kind of clubhouse atmosphere. You know, we got yeah. beanbag chairs and hey, why would you ever leave? You well, know? I, I visited the Google office in Toronto once uh, for professional reasons a while back for another uh, organization I was working for. You were um, like, how? can i control my staff <laughs> well so so it, it is yeah it is set up with this kind of clubhouse vibe and they have like a cafeteria where there's like a different it, uh-huh. as as advertised and it was like a different five-star chef every week and you know that kind of thing and yeah the catch is that like they never seem to leave and they were seeming right. to work at kind of all hours and the next step is mm-hmm. they'll build apartment buildings at the office right and they'll say hey why don't you live you right. know instead of getting paid we can give you room and board yeah and then you know give it 20 years and every single or you know major metropolitan area is just a giant company town owned by either like Facebook or Google. So a lot yeah, sooner than Amazon that. Amazon or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, there's a company buying our waterfront right now as we speak. <laughs> A friend member once told me about going for a really weird job interview at Lululemon, which for non-North America, I mean, they must have it. Do they have it in Europe, Lululemon? Uh, no idea. Okay, well, it's a, I think a BC-based company originally. Mm-hmm. Um, great, you know, Canadian success story. Um, but basically, they make kind of like yoga apparel and, and things like that. And my friend went for this job interview, and apparently it was like they all had to sit in a circle and talk about their hopes and dreams and things like that. Oh my like God. in a way which sounded both degrading and like very invasive. It's like, do, do I? I mean, I don't know how much you get paid to work like a retail job at lululemon but probably not enough to warrant telling like total strangers your hopes and dreams as a precondition to having a wage honestly it is bad that every job interview everywhere in any job has to start with the question why do you want to work here and the <laughs> what, are your, what are your strengths and weaknesses and, and the answer to why do you want to work here cannot be i need money to survive <laughs> the answer has to be oh well you know i i really believe in the mission of kfc uh, i think it i think chicken is a wonderful product and you know i've loved chicken ever That's since right. i worked i've always taken an interest in chicken and yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and and you know colonel sanders has always been like a, role, a, me- a mentor in a some role ways. model he's he's an entrepreneur and he's a colonel you know <laughs> yeah he's a he's a troop and i respect right. his service but <laughs> and you know the fact that you do a job interview and there are some some references you give and if that goes well that's all you have to go on for this thing that you're going to devote so much of your life well to. and and i mean when when you're looking for a job i mean you usually you usually don't have a lot of choice i mean the last yeah. time that i was kind of uh, hunting for jobs i i was just taking interviews anywhere that seemed like this might be okay mm-hmm. yeah as you say i mean if you go in and you meet these people that you've never met before and if they like you enough that they hire you, mm-hmm. then that's what you're doing for 40 hours a week minimum, you know, indefinitely. And, you know, the theory of the work week is you have eight hours of the job, eight hours of your own time, eight hours to sleep. 
But obviously that's not how it is because two of your eight hours are going to be spent commuting, probably. Some of that time is going to be spent uh, trying to wake yourself up in the morning and take a shower. Yeah, because you're exhausted from working the previous day. Brush your teeth. You know, if you've got a family, you're going to be home making food for your family, probably. You get home at seven from your commute, you have dinner, and you fall asleep at 10 because you're so tired. Mm -hmm. How many hours do you get? And then you have a weekend Mm -hmm. where you buy groceries. Yeah, and I mean, so much of the work that is available to do, you know, for most people is just so utterly meaningless and degrading, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I believe, you know, someone uh, once wrote about alienated labor, uh, Mm -hmm. but it's, you know, it's, it's very apt. I mean, you give up all this time in your life, you know, out of kind of a material necessity. And, you know, for most of us, it's not really out of choice. We, we do the work that's available to us. And it often means pouring tremendous energy and time and, you know, soul into things that we don't ultimately care about that much and which are kind of incidental to us. And oftentimes things that are meaningless. And this is blue collar and white collar, right. by the and way. And at the end of the day, most of it is to enrich someone else. Yeah. You know? And you you're at this job where the people you spend time with the, the job, you see them more than your family. You see them more than your friends. If there's somebody at the job that you have a rapport with, that is both a godsend, beautiful little oasis in the desert. And it's also a bit melancholy because it's like you, you have a rapport with this person in the context of this job. Mm-hmm. Like, let's say you're Tim Canterbury, the <laughs> protagonist, I guess, the audience surrogate of yeah. The Office who is entirely competent, a little too smart for the job that he has, either maybe a little low ambition, quote unquote, or a little directionless in life. Still lives with his parents. So, of course, he's absolutely miserable at his job at Wernham Hogg, the paper merchant in Slough. Right, right. So, for you know, for those unfamiliar with the show, yeah, Wernham Hogg is a kind of failing mid-sized paper company it's kind of on its way out um paper company uh, they don't even manufacture the paper they just are kind of a distributor basically uh, and it's in slough which is sort of a, a satellite of of london the opening credits begin with some establishing shots of slough you see the roundabout you see you know the the, the exterior of the office you see some roadway all of it in overcast weather. Just see commercial traffic going round and round and round. No beauty. Yeah. All these characters are thrown together. I guess we should just kind of briefly introduce the characters. You have uh, Tim Canterbury, uh, who you mentioned, who, yeah, as you said, is kind of the audience surrogate. I'm still available. Uh, I'm a heck of a catch because, let, well, let's look at it. I live in Slough in a lovely house with my parents. <laughs> I have my own room, which I've had since, yeah, since I was born. Um, that's seen a lot of action, I tell you. Mainly dusting, but uh, I went to university for a year as well, before I dropped out, so I'm a quitter. Uh, so yeah, form an orderly queue, ladies. Uh, you have Dawn, who I guess is kind of the other audience surrogate. Mm-hmm. Um, She's a aspiring artist who has more or less given up her dreams mm-hmm. and has become a full-time receptionist. And she is the sort of love interest on the show. But it's for, bit, for Tim, yeah. For Tim, but it's a, a bit of a love triangle because she's engaged to Lee. 
Right, who uh, works down, I guess, in the warehouse. And she, much like Tim, has sort of settled out of inertia into her place in life. Uh, and Tim's equivalent to that is that he he wanted to go to university and be a, a psychologist. We, we're not exactly sure why, but it, it seems like he has continued to kind of punt that ambition down the road over and over again, even though he's uh, he's pushing 30 uh, and, you know, he doesn't feel like there's a lot of time left. But um, another another thing about a lot of modern workplace culture is it just forces you into this grind that's so demoralizing. Mm-hmm. It can be very hard to kind of break any of these cycles. Mm-hmm. And as bad as life may be, it is your life. Like, you're used to it. And you get a certain amount of comfort in it. And going outside of that comfort zone, even if you don't like the comfort zone, can be very scary. As he says in one episode, you know, I may have rolled a three right now. I could roll a seven if I go out, but I could also roll the one. Yeah. But of course, the center of the show is uh, none other than Mr. David Brent, played by Ricky Gervais, who, along with Steve Merchant, uh, wrote the show. People see me and they see the suit and they go, you're not fooling anyone. They know I'm rock and roll through and through. But uh, you know that old thing, live fast, die young. Not my way. Live fast, sure. Live too bloody fast sometimes. But uh, die young, die old. That's the way. Not orthodox, you know. I don't live by the rules. I once heard Gervais kind of summarizing the character, um, and I think his description is really apt. He said the best way to understand David Brand is he's the middle of everything, right? He's middle-aged, he's middle management, he works at, you know, a mid-sized paper company. He's perfectly in the middle of everything. He's kind of mediocre. And what do we really know about David Brent? Uh, Well, it's not really clear what his backstory is. I remember I used to think that at one point he was perhaps a kind of a competent, you know, rising star in this... uh, this boring company. And I'm, there, I'm not it, sure there about is that anymore. Some, there is some indication of that because he was, of course, profiled in Paper Magazine. Yeah, some years ago. Um, he keeps it around in his office so people know. Every now and then people allude to him having come highly recommended from somebody or other. Mm-hmm. But the universe of the show has been destabilized by the fact that there's a documentary crew there. Of mm-hmm. course, people who uh, have seen the U.S. office will be very familiar with this structuring device, mm-hmm. the idea that we're watching Watching a mockumentary and uh, David Brandt we discover is somebody who once had show business ambitions that mm-hmm. have been long cast aside as he's pursued his career in management and and you know what's so funny about that is you know I always like to imagine is in some ways Ricky Gervais imagining a kind of alternative life for himself because before he wrote The Office, which ultimately led him and Merchant to write extras and then led him to become a, you know, a huge star, um, which, you know, didn't happen until I guess he was, I mean, I he, think was in he, his 40s. he was in his 40s when they wrote The Office. He had a number of kind of failed attempts to break into entertainment and, and other things. You know, um, he was part of a group that I think was called Shauna Dancing in the 80s. Uh-huh. And then in the 90s, I think he was trying to break into sort of radio and TV. He and Merchant had a show uh, on the London-based alternative music radio station XFM, which in the early 2000s was also kind of a cult thing. It was on when they were doing The Office. And of course, their producer on that show was none other than Carl Pilkington, um, who they later had a very successful podcast with. Uh, in some ways, they you know they kind of helped popularize the podcast form. So I suppose... Uh, we, we are indebted to them as, as podcasters ourselves. But, you know, one wonders what would have happened. I mean, Ricky Gervais failed a lot of times before he succeeded. And uh, and it's it's not hard to imagine, he would probably agree with this, that in an alternate timeline, he just is David Brent. Mm-hmm. So the documentary crew is there, and all the characters on the show have some awareness of the camera. 
everybody looks at the camera every now and then or reacts to the camera. But David Brent is the one who is the most, I guess, thrown off by the camera, but he's also constantly performing to the camera. He's kind of a Rupert Pupkin type, you know? (laughs) It's like he finally has an audience. And so all of his thwarted show business ambitions start coming back. Every interaction that he has becomes like an interaction that he's seen on TV. And he starts dreaming big show business dreams again. On one of the episodes we watched, he you know, makes a point of bringing up his former time in a band uh, (laughs) called Foregone Conclusion. And then uh, when people at the office show a very, very slight curiosity about it, he then brings in his guitar and starts playing. And he's just walking around with a swagger all of a sudden. And then all of a sudden he's talking about, you know, touring again. Uh, <laughs> later in the show, he's offered a chance to do some motivational speaking. And just that mere offer makes him think that he has a whole future as a sort of Tony Robbins style <laughs> guru. So we, we didn't have time to revisit the whole show for this episode, although I think it's safe to say that uh, you know, Will and I have each probably seen every episode, I would say conservatively 15 times yeah. each. Yeah. I mean, in, in all seriousness, mm-hmm. The Office is one of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. I, I think you probably Absolutely. feel the same probably way. Top five. Yeah, easily. I had not watched it for a few years, um, but boy, did I enjoy revisiting it. So, I mean, there are only, I guess, 12 episodes plus the Christmas special. Mm-hmm. Is that right? So That's right. two seasons in you know the fine tradition of british shows keeping it short and sweet punctuated with uh you know a kind of special at the end there's not a lot of the office it you know the american one uh, which i think is also good um but you know definitely i think it's safe to say was on tv for for far too long and, and significantly declined in its last few seasons whereas the bbc office I think I heard either Merchant or Gervais once say that it took them three months to write half an hour of script. Mm. So this is just some of the tightest comedy that you're mm. ever going to see. Every moment is incredible. We watched four episodes, you know, that were, I guess, kind of some of our favorites to uh, to prep for this. And, and I don't know, I'd kind of just like to go through them. I'm game if you are. Yeah, let's do it. So the first one was the quiz, which is in uh, season one. I think it's the third episode of season one. Mm -hmm. And in the quiz, David Brent is a little flustered because he finds out that they're kind of uh, obligatory... Annual quiz night. Yeah, annual quiz night that he's going to have some competition. He and his rather loathsome chum, Chris Finch, you know, have some competition because there's this temp in the office named Ricky who's done some kind of quiz on TV. So he kind of uh, keeps ambushing him with different facts about Dostoevsky. He's obviously just kind of looked up on Wikipedia a few moments before. And the quiz night is the sort of thing that often happens in an office where it's this... uh, kind of obligatory social get-together, you know? And, you know, I think my memory is that they're in a sort of pub for quiz night, but this time watching it, I realized that they're actually just on the ground floor of their regular buildings. They've all descended from the office to just like one floor down where they have to do this thing. And it's Tim's 30th birthday. That's how it opens. You know, he's in the office early while it's just the cleaning staff there. And he's wearing a, a stupid like radio hat that's you that know his mother's that given his mother's him. given him, mm-hmm. and he's just in you know in the midst of a crisis about what am I you know what am I doing uh, in my life? Yeah, I mean my reception of all this was this seems such bleaker now that I am thirty. <laughs> yeah, now that we're thirty, we are surrounded by people who are giving up their dreams. Mm-hmm. This is the time of life where you give up your dreams and you settle down and you become an adult. 
And and we often feel that being an adult is just like give up on that thing that you wanted to do because it's not realistic. Now, I remember watching this series for the first time and this episode was the one when I think I fully realized that this wasn't an ordinary show because there's uh, a fourth major character, Gareth Keenan, mm-hmm. played by Mackenzie Crook. He's the Rain Wilson character. Mm-hmm. He's uh, a, bit, a bit of a toady, a bit of a nerd, mm-hmm. uh, a, a bit of a jerk. Mm-hmm. And he's... But fundamentally sort of socially inept. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, and he's kind of... A, he, his masculinity is always sort of in crisis, so he always talks about the fact that he was in the Territorial mm-hmm. Army and stuff like that. Yes, I've had office romances. <laughs> Loads. Not here. Another place I worked at. Good looking ones as well. But they're not a good idea. Office romance. It's like shitting on your own doorstep. I've had loads of offers here, but I go, no way. Distracting. And that's actually one of the major arguments against letting gay men into the army. And I haven't got a problem with that. You know, a gay man's not going to put me off. I can handle myself. But if we're in battle, is he going to be looking at the enemy or is he going to be looking at me going, ooh, you know, he looks tasty in his uniform. And I'm not homophobic, all right? Come around, look at my CD collection. You'll find Queen, George Michael, Pet Shop Boys. And for the first few episodes, one thinks that this is going to be the typical sitcom where he's kind of uh, the foil for the charming lead character. Which sort of is what happens in the American version. But actually, you know, this guy really is a worm. He really is like... Truly unlovable. Um, <laughs> he also ends up being more successful than Tim. Yeah. Uh, because he's more committed to this job. He's a company suck-up. Yeah. He's always, you know, David Brandt's little man. The, 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 the detail I really love about him is that he has this make-believe title where he claims that... Like, he'll often say that he's assistant to assistant he, regional manager... But then Brent will correct him and say, well, assistant to the regional manager. Right. And I think we've all, you know, experienced this in, in you know, one form or another in a workplace where people, where, you know, people just carve out these little tiny bits of power or status wherever they can. I worked in a kitchen once and I remember there was a completely uncodified hierarchy outside of just the people that were, you know, there was like the head chef and the sous chefs. And then beyond that, you know, there wasn't any official kind of hierarchy, except I guess the dishwashers were kind of, they had the least status, which is such a ridiculous (laughs) thing to say in retrospect, because we were all basically doing the same things. But I remember there was this one guy who uh, just insisted that he he was kind of next in command. So when the chefs would go home, he would always act like the boss. Mm -hmm. And I remember he used to... A lot of that job was just cleaning up, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you'd spend hours just mopping and vacuuming and doing dishes and stuff at the end of the night. And uh, this guy would... He was, like, above that. And he just kind of established that by going out and and having dinner at the bar. And then he'd sort of come back in and he'd, like, look at your work with his arms folded. And he'd say, like, oh, you missed a spot or whatever. Or he'd say, you know, oh, was that that a pre-mop that you just just Mm -hmm. did? Um, You know, like... You know, yeah, you didn't mop the floor. Just do do it again. Do mop until, you know, it may be 2.30 a.m., but we're going to stay here until you've mopped the disgusting kitchen floor to my satisfaction. I feel like small businesses are particularly bad for this because, like, they become an eccentric person's little fiefdom. Yeah, you know? yeah. This guy definitely uh, fit that description. <laughs> uh, but on the quiz episode, as you mentioned, Brent and Chris Finch have their little team, and they've ruled the roost for the last few years. They've consistently mm-hmm. won, often by cheating. Uh huh. And they lose this year to Tim and Ricky. Yeah. 
they've been so humiliated by this that they figure out a new thing that they're going to do, which is to sort of ambush Tim and take off his shoes and do a throwing contest. Who can throw his shoes over the roof more? The, the episode ends depressingly with everybody sort of going home and Tim sort of shoeless on his birthday, his 30th birthday, walking away. He's, uh, yeah, he's sitting there looking abject, wearing hat FM on his head with no shoes as uh, Dawn, who he loves, goes home with uh, her extremely unpleasant, uh, ungrateful fiance. And Gareth, you know, the little worm, the asshole, is in the boss's good graces. That's right. Something that I noticed about this episode that I don't think I'd picked up on before, Chris Finch keeps uh, going after Ricky, the character, not Ricky Gervais, who's kind of, he's younger, he's kind of like the best looking guy in the office, he's the temp, and he's been to, he's been to college. And I think uh, the implication is that he's actually got a bit of kind of class anxiety and class envy. He's always like ranting about, you know, bloody students and, mm. you know, there are things you don't get from book learning and things like that. But uh, he's also brags that I read a book every week. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so, yeah, he has to he has to one up this guy. He and Brent have to one up Ricky and Tim, because, again, uh, if you spend eight or ten hours a day uh, in a particular setting, I mean, you're going to take your victories where you can get them, right? Mm-hmm. Because that becomes your whole world. Mm-hmm. So it can become uh, extremely important if you're a certain type of person to have these like mm-hmm. minor triumphs mm-hmm. in the uh, basement of the crappy building where you have to work so that you don't starve. And because it's your your whole world, uh, because these are the people that you see more than anyone else, any spark of connection you can have, you cherish it. And that's the relationship between Tim and Don you know, I, I sometimes wonder watching watching the show, what would their relationship be like outside the context of this office? Because what bonds them is the fact that they're both smart enough to understand what a miserable workplace environment this is. They both understand what an asshole Gareth is and mm-hmm. what a kind of cute little dolt uh, David Brent is. Yeah, they're, they're ultimately a lot less, I think, threatened or bothered by David mm-hmm. Brent. They see him for what he is, which is, you know, mostly uh, mostly innocuous. Mo- mo- mostly but a little a, pathetic. A pitiable figure mm-hmm. more than a, a kind of a, mm-hmm. a dangerous one. And I think, you know, at the end of the show... Uh, where they where they finally get together spoiler it's a very tender moment but it's it's unclear i mean what's going to happen next because all they've done is just be honest with themselves and each other for the first time in their adult lives and it's mm-hmm. unclear where that's going to take them but i think you know hopefully it's mm-hmm. to a better place than they were at before the politics of their relationship is so complicated because if they spoil the connection that mm-hmm. they have if one of them goes too far they've spoiled the one kind of sliver of light that they have at the well ne- neither of them really has friendship i mean don doesn't get friendship from her relationship at all and, and tim sense, doesn't really yeah, have any friends it yeah seems like. and we sense that in don's relationship like her relationship sort of smothers her. She's not really allowed to have friendships outside of it. I mean, there's a devastating scene in the quiz episode where Lee is kind of laying out their future to just a random guy in the office. And he's saying, you know, um, yeah, you know, I thought after a couple more years, you know, we'd move. And then, you know, Dawn could get a few kids under her belt, which is great because my mom could take care of them. And then, you know, he turns to her and he says, and you could probably get a little part-time cleaning job or something, mm-hmm. you know. So he's just kind of mapping out their future and it's mm-hmm. and it's totally depressing. And, and he's fine with it. And he's got absolutely no interest in her ambition to be a, mm-hmm. a, a children's illustrator, which is the only thing that seems 
to give her any happiness. And meanwhile, Gareth also doesn't understand her dreams because he thinks, why would you waste your time on that? You got a job for life here. Yeah, it's like you could just be a company suck up like me and rise very slightly higher in this yeah. like this hierarchy in this terrible company. If you keep doing this, you can be a receptionist at head office, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, So the second episode we watched, um, which I think is one of the best depictions of like patronizing HR-inflicted kind of workplace culture ever committed to the silver screen, <laughs> is uh, the training episode. And uh, the ba- I tear up just thinking about it. It's so perfect. Oh, man. The, so the backstory of this one is that, you know, Wernham Hogg is some kind of, a tr- you know, company training thing where they bring in this third party, I guess, company they've kind of outsourced to, uh, to run a training uh, thing for their employees. And the best thing about this episode is is the depictions of what this training, you know, looks like. And what, again, what is this training even? What is the subject of the training? It's- I mean, anybody, anybody who's ever been involved in any sort of corporate, you know, team building building exercise or company retreat perhaps uh you know a thing like that will be aware of this kind of thing so you see rowan who's the the guy directing the training which again you know something else i had noticed you know the training seems to be happening off-site but then when you see them going to the training they're just walking through a corridor in the same building <laughs> like their their office basically is just a a prison (laughs) you know they're not even allowed to even their field trip is just in the same you know it's just in another part of the facility you know it's just in another part of this like postmodern asylum in which they're all locked uh for eight hours a day rowan you know the training seminars he he directs is things like uh there'll be a a a slide or i guess not even a slide it's like an overhead and it just says the word motivation with an exclamation point (laughs) at the end there's a team building exercise where it's the classic problem where you have the fox, the grain, and the chicken, and you got a river, and you got to figure out which order you're going to put, you take them across the river so that, you know, the chicken doesn't eat the grain, the fox doesn't eat the chicken. Yeah, so everybody get in groups of two yeah. and figure out the problem, and the <laughs> whole point of the exercise is that you and that other person have worked as a team. That's right. To solve the problem. And of course, when you see them actually, you see these like little cutaways of, of the different groups, you know, working out the problem. It's always just one person kind of running through it, and then maybe the <laughs> other, maybe they're like charitably letting the other person write write the answer down. <laughs> But I mean, it's a stupid exercise, and it's not one that requires two people. And what what grown adults are supposed to learn from that is unclear. And it seems like everyone's kind of going through this, the you know, this ritual for what purpose? Beyond, I mean, the purpose is like like a Kafka esque one. It's just that some distant you know corporate bureaucracy <laughs> needs to be able to you know do it but seriously like yeah, needs yeah. to be able to like put a check mark on a piece of paper to say they've done it to prevent them potentially getting sued or to fulfill some stupid obligation you know there's another scene i can't remember which episode it's in where you know gareth runs this like health and safety training where it's like teaching you how to pick up a box so that you don't strain your lower back or it's like don't mm. put hot coffee on the top mm. of the computer but it's clearly just something that he's invented so that he can get this woman in i don't know room if he's, with i don't know if he's invented it so much as he's just using it for that purpose Uh but but i mean the idea that any grown adult needs to be told Mm -hmm. you know i mean it's it's a great depiction of just how utterly paternalistic sort of workplace 
culture is. And of course, the comedic fulcrum of the episode is that David Brent cannot yield the floor even a little bit, even to this guy who's running this boring obligatory training thing. So he's constantly interrupting all the all the sort of like uh, role playing scenarios. He's he's like you know he's hamming it up. Right in this. Uh, scenario. We'll start with something nice and easy. I'm going to play, and, and, and this will be the wrong way to do it. I'm going to play a very bad hotel manager who just doesn't care. So, and if it's a Basil Fawlty type character, then well, there, Tyler, maybe I should do it just for the comedy. Yeah. Well, let me just yeah. play, just you know, just to kick things off. Okay. Uh, I'll probably bring so much to this role anyway. So. Right. Okay. Go well, on, you've got to complain. You yeah. come and complain, and I'll show you the, the wrong way to handle it. This will be the okay. wrong way. Okay. Right. So off we go. So what was the complaint? Just, just make it up. Anything. Because there's no right or wrong thing in this scenario. Then we tell you the right thing afterwards, so okay. we might as right. well, well you, you, get on with it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. I'd like to make a complaint, please. <laughs> don't care. Well, um, I am staying in the hotel. I don't care. So it's I've... not my shift. Well, you're an ambassador for the hotel. I don't care. I, I don't think care you'll care when you I tell think. you what the complaint <laughs> I is. I think there's been a rape up there. I got his attention. Get their attention. My dad often tells this story of at a job he was at, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, maybe, where they flew everybody out to the island of Capri. Where's that? Uh, in Italy. Really? Yeah, it was a pretty... Uh, Your dad, uh, he was working at a mid-sized paper company? <laughs> they flew everyone out there, and for some sort of team-building exercise, dad didn't have any time to really go explore the island of Capri, because on one of the days... They got into groups and made a macaroni painting together, you know, like like gluing macaroni <laughs> onto the, the, the page. Mm-hmm. And he often refers to that ruefully about how he didn't get to see Capri because he was busy making a macaroni painting. Unbelievable. Uh, and I remember a job that I was at where we had to do like, like an orientation where they showed us this video called Fish. Are you familiar? It was kind of a phenomenon in the early 2000s. There's this famous fish merchant in Seattle, I think. They're at this like Seattle market and everybody there, like the guys who work there really put on a show. They're kind of a tourist attraction. They're always like throwing the fish at each other and they're always hamming it up. Oh yeah, you know why I know about that? Because there's a video of Howard Schultz walking around. uh, Oh yeah. Talking about how he got the inspiration for one of the roasts or something there. So the video is a documentary about them and it's full Mm. of these rather bleak interviews with the people who work there saying like, you know, we just decide to have a good attitude every day. I mean, you know, like, you think I like getting up at five in the morning and, you know, having to load a bunch of fish in a truck? I'm, no, I, but, 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 you know, I choose my attitude every day. Oh. So, you know, we're out there and we're having fun. And I see that video and I think, holy shit, I would like access to a full range of emotions when I go to work. Yeah. If I feel sad, I want to feel sad. Well, and you know what's so particularly bleak about that is is one of the particular features of kind of work under, you know, late capitalism. I, I know what you're going to say. Is that, is that responsibility for all that stuff is just shifted onto the employee, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where the rhetoric of self-care can often become kind of dangerous. Mm-hmm. Like what that often is, is sort of the neoliberal language of self-management, right? Don't like your job well you know that's for you to kind of negotiate you know (laughs) don't form a union but go home and light a candle and put on a face mask Mm -hmm. and that's that's your responsibility and you know i guess afford those things with the 14 dollars an hour that you're getting paid at your soulless office job or whatever Mm -hmm. so the third episode we watched is called new girl uh it follows directly on the heels of training uh, at the end of which tim under the mistaken impression that don has broken up with lee 
uh, awkwardly ass her out moments after finding the confidence to storm out of this awful training situation. And of course is just humiliated, um, not just in front of Don, uh, but in front of the entire office, who of course are not unaware that he has a, a crush on her. And New Girl is, is an episode I wanted to watch because I think it's the only one, certainly the only one in the first season that that mostly takes place or, you know, it, to, for a significant significantly takes place, you know, off site because mm-hmm. mostly there's one set in this show. And so this is where we get to see kind of what the nightlife is for the folks at, at Wernham Hog. In the day, we see David Brent, you know, have uh, interviews for a new secretary. He headbutts one of them in the face. Um, and this is interesting, by the way, because you get a bit of a sense of David Brandt's, I guess, frustrated sexuality mm-hmm. because he interviews, you know, one male applicant for the job. And played, one played little Easter egg here, played by Robin Ince, mm-hmm. British comedian Robin Ince, who uh, who I think toured with Gervais and uh, as a friend of his and who doesn't really get to be funny here, but is uh, is very funny. And he interviews a female applicant as well, who he is acting, you know, kind of aggressively flirty with. Yeah. Um, he has a strange relationship to the women on the show. I think there's a bit of a suggestion that he maybe also has a bit of a crush on Dawn. Yeah. But the way that his... I guess romantic feelings manifest themselves are he wants to sort of establish dominance over the women around him. So he wants a woman as a secretary. Uh, later on, he wants Dawn, he hires Dawn to literally carry his bag to an event. Yeah, he gives up a third of his honorarium from the event mm-hmm. just so that he can have like a subordinate who's a woman carry his bag. There's another character who uh, is staying at his home for a short period of time. Yeah, and, she's like temping in the mm-hmm. office. And she she's has a young woman. Yeah, she has an affair with somebody at the office with with Rick with Ricky, in fact, with yeah, Ricky, the young temp. And David uh, has a lot of trouble with that because. You know, this attractive young woman who lives with him is is not, I guess, obeying the rules of his household. Yeah, he feels like he should be treated as a sort of surrogate father. Right. Which is such a patronizing attitude. But it's clearly there's a, a certain amount of displaced sexual oh, energy ab- here. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, we see them go out to the club. And what's so extraordinary about this is that... Uh, you know, Tim goes along. He's invited. We see him getting invited by none other than, you know, Chris Finch and Gareth and David Brent. And, you know, there's a, a cutaway where he's talking about the nightlife scene in uh, in Slough and how depressing it is. But, of course, then he just goes. Because what else is he supposed to do? Where well, else are you yeah. going to go? Because he spends eight hours a day at this office and he lives with his parents. He has no friends. Right. Where, where, does, he, where does he have time for friends? Right, right. You know, you find friends uh, where you can get them. I mean, at, that, at that same restaurant I worked at, one of the things I remember about it that stuck with me is how you know so many people would actually come in on their off days just to kind of be in the restaurant because it, it doubled as a social scene and often after our shifts we would go across uh, the road to like another not identical but very similar kind of establishment to spend you know half our wages on a few pints because mm-hmm. you know what else are you going to do you, you spend all this time uh, in the restaurant you got really irregular hours this is the only time you can find uh, you know any kind of social engagement and the only people you're going to find it with uh- most of the men of the office and some of the women as well shuffle their way towards this club where they dull themselves with liquor Mm -hmm. and hopefully find somebody to have sex with. Uh Because again, I mean, building on what you said before, you know, you're working eight hours a day, but really you're working 10 or 11 hours with all the other stuff you have to do to sort of be prepared for work. Um, And you're doing that five days a week. 
that's all building up to the end of the week where what do you have to look forward to? Well, you can go out to a club and maybe hopefully have a, a sexual encounter that isn't too awkward and you can get, you know, outrageously drunk so that you forget about... Numb uh, the pain a little. Yeah, the things that are bothering you. And then you, you can wake up at, you know, 11 or, or at noon the next day. And if you can recover in the next few hours, you can you can have another stab at it on Saturday. <laughs> and then on Sunday, you can sit uh, lounging around... Uh, watching le- TV. Watching TV, recovering... Uh, nursing your hangover and lamenting the fact that the weekend's almost over so you can't enjoy the other half of it because mm-hmm. you have to go back to work the next day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's kind of what this is uh, depicting. And the episode ends with everybody sort of staggering out of the club, some with partners and some without. And in fact, the odious Chris Finch, who is a bit of a sexual boaster through yeah. the whole show, always talking about his conquests. He would or, be, he would be a, like, if the show had been made 10 years later, he'd just be a PUA. Yeah. You know? He, of course, gets a little bit lucky at the club and in fact he gets a bit lucky several times during the course of the show because he wears people down and he's aggressively confident and in this bleak hell world that the show is set in that's basically all it takes there's no justice yeah yeah because well they bend over backwards for me you know and not because they're scared of me but because they love me and i love them you know and you're going to love me as well not because of what i am not anything sexual So the the last episode we watched was Motivation from season two, which is, you know, there are many incredible Ricky Gervais performances in the show, um, but I think this one is definitely in the top two or three. It's perhaps worth noting how the show has progressed in the second season. The paper company's failing, so they've merged two branches. Mm -hmm. And David Brent has ended up, uh, you know, he had a chance to ascend in the company. And uh, ultimately, uh, Neil, who managed the other branch, took his place. So David Brent now has kind of a new new boss Mm -hmm. and also a new staff to try to impress and ingratiate himself to, Mm -hmm. which, of course, he does very badly. The new staff doesn't like him and the new boss neil is you know a bit a bit smug a bit arrogant but he's also more competent than david brent is and he's has a much easier time with people Mm. the staff like him a lot he he honestly just acts like a boss and doesn't really try too hard to be liked and so Mm -hmm. he kind of has people's respect and this is very difficult for david who really kind of imagines himself as the boss that everybody loves. So, I mean, there's that great scene. We didn't watch the episode. There's that great scene when after they've merged the, merged the branches where uh, Brent tries to do stand-up comedy in front of the new staff. And this is his first chance to make an impression. Now, I don't want to hear any of that in the workplace. <laughs> and a, a little Easter egg in the scene that I absolutely love. The show is full of these little details is that during that scene... Gareth is inexplicably kind of sitting off to the side like he's picked up his chair and he's tilted it to the side so that he can like position himself as sort of the the you know the deputy leader or yeah. something <laughs> But so in in the motivation episode, uh, you know, Brent has been asked to speak at just a god-awful motivational event or kind of... Something for business people. It's kind of inspirational thing for people. Yeah, for They got four business leaders to Mm. give a little pep talk. And I mean, business leaders might be a little generous. (laughs) They got a bunch of people from kind of the uh, the Slough BIA or whatever to, to come and... 
and yeah, give these kind of totally vapid pep talks. We catch a little bit of uh, of each one, and Brent is really excited because uh, they're paying him what is it, four hundred pounds, three hundred quid, three hundred yeah. quid, but it's only for fifteen minutes, and so he does the math, and they, that'd be twelve hundred quid an hour. As Not he, bad. As he tell, he inflicts that statistic on every interlocutor he can find, and he asks Don to be his, I guess, personal assistant. Right. Pays her a hundred pounds for that. <laughs> right. Yeah, and gives a sort of because uh, he also wants like a girl there to witness. It, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and so uh, you see the other the other guys kind of go up and their their presentations are like uh you know your future hasn't happened yet you you shape it you're yeah. in the driver's you're in the seat. driving seat or there's the other one who says there are many people who would think you should feel guilty because you're successful <laughs> yeah. you know you should feel good why because this is a business <laughs> yeah just you know the most empty corporate speak just kind of meaningless platitudes and then Brent gets up there. And he's got a backwards ball cap and he's got a tight t-shirt. <laughs> we should just drop the clip yeah. in. There's no point describing it. Okay, well that's about it from yours truly. Thanks for taking all I had to throw at you. I'm spent. But um, I am now going to make like a banana and split. <laughs> he got it. Okay, um, before I go though, um, promise me you'll remember one thing. Yeah? Just remember. Yes, uh, our thanks to David. You stopped it. I do, I do. No, don't stop it. Leave it going right at the end till I get the. Don't okay. do that again next time, okay? Sorry. There's an absolutely devastating moment during that episode. You know, in the second season, Tim has a romantic subplot with another character, another woman in the office, one of the new employees, while Dawn is sort of trapped in this loveless engagement with Lee. And while Brent is giving his little motivational speech, the camera sort of like zooms in on Dawn as she's watching this. And you hear her saying in an, inter- in an interview, yeah, I guess my life didn't really turn out the way I thought it would. Um, and I mean, there have been times in my life when I have absolutely thought of that moment. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, after I was at journalism school and I did this internship at NPR, I, I really felt on top of the world. Yeah. And then there were four months of unemployment after that. And yeah. then I got a job working at a wonderful rural newspaper. Many great experiences. Mm. But I do remember a bad experience. To and work- a, probably a bit of a difficult transition a, 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 after living in New York City and then D.C. for uh, four months. Yes, and, a, very, yeah. a very humbling transition in certain ways. But I remember in, in one of the early weeks, I was... Uh, working late because I had to go to the local school to photograph a meeting for they were going to have a new key club Uh, and I'm not talking about a sexy key club I'm talking about an actual key club you know (laughs) and it was an underattended event I think there were four people in the audience who were interested in in the key club and then there were the two people presenting it and you know I'm there taking photos you know crouching down trying to get exotic angles and I was thinking at that moment of dawn, sitting there thinking, you know, my life didn't quite turn out as I thought it would. 
Yeah, I definitely had a few years in my 20s. I mean, after being a student, I remember uh, I I was in university for for five years, you know, four for my BA and one for my MA. And I remember just how quickly after my MA finished, I realized that I actually had no identity to speak of because Mm -hmm. my entire identity had just been tied up with being a student. And I remember kind of hitting the job market. I guess this would have been in um, the fall of 2013, Mm -hmm. something like that. And thinking, well, I'm going to be fine. You know? Oh, yeah. I, I got a master's degree. I was the editor of a, the campus newspaper. I'm going to be just fine. Very quickly, I settled into a pattern of like sleeping in, getting up at sort of 12 or 1, maybe working myself up to by 4.30, send a resume or two somewhere. <laughs> and then at 5, be like, well, uh, that's it. That's all I can you know do for today. It's 5 o'clock. And then I would just kind of sit in play civilization for hours and like drink wine by myself in my apartment and then i'd get up the next day and do it again and uh i did that for a lot longer than i than i should and i had you know absolutely no money and uh and and kind of uh no no identity (laughs) and i definitely thought i'd be lying if uh my life turned out the way i thought you know i remember during that four months of unemployment which doesn't sound like that much but when you're you're in the middle of it oh yeah yeah and there's no end in sight my parents, to try to get me out of the house, uh, forced me to do some volunteer work at the local public access channel, the local Rogers station. So I worked for a few weeks as unpaid uh, as a camera operator on the Kitchener-Waterloo equivalent of like Regis and Kathy Lee. Like I didn't know this. Yeah, this is a brand new story. Uh-huh. So I was working there, me and a bunch of high school students who were there so this was to like, get this credits. Was like the view for like yeah, Kitchener yeah, Waterloo. Yeah, and uh, you know it was it was uh, lovely. You know the <laughs> the hosts were wonderful. You know my my bosses there were <laughs> were wonderful. But I remember just feeling so depressed. And <laughs> one day towards the end, I like very consciously wore my NPR shirt there hoping somebody would ask. And then I could say, oh, well, you know, interesting thing about what I did last like, summer. I used to be somebody. Yeah, okay? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast before, but probably my the thing that I've done that comes closest to uh, to working at somewhere like Wernham Hog was a very short time after high school when I experienced the first incarnation of of feeling kind of listless and confused and where is my life is going which so the, the one I described before was was after university this was a few years before that because I took you know a year you know quote unquote off as they call it because I took a gap year between high school and university I remember it being kind of September 1st or 2nd thinking oh god I have to get a job I'm an adult now mm-hmm. god damn it I have to get a job and I remember walking around uh, Hamilton Ontario going to like Harvey's and like Tim Hortons, and I remember the boss at the Tim Hortons like basically laughed me out of the store. She was so condescending. Um, I gave her my resume, and she's like, "What's this? What's this?" And I was like, "Oh, it's a strawberry farm I used to work at." <laughs> and I'll have to tell on another episode. I'll have to tell you about the strawberry farm. That was a whole fun experience in itself. <laughs> a couple years prior, but yeah, she she she's like, uh, you know, come back, come back when you have some experience. Uh, and she and laughed out of a Wendy's. Uh, uh, t- Tim Hortons. Tim, Tim Hortons. Hortons. Um, yeah, and the, the the Harvey's guy was uh, was not convinced. Would you believe my my firm handshake as a seventeen year old didn't <laughs> didn't sway this manager of the Harvey's? And I, I remember doing both of those on the same day, and then being so demoralized that I walked around various streets in Hamilton 
And just even walking by places that I thought I could drop off a resume was so terrifying. I thought, well, I'll just come back here tomorrow. I've kind of done the hardest part, which is just walking up to the door. And then eventually I'll, I'll go in. Anyway, some days into this process, I ran into some acquaintances from high school at uh, at the local shopping mall where I was uh, looking around for jobs and being too afraid to apply for them. <laughs> and they told me about a place uh, where they said, you know, it was a it was a uh, direct marketing company. That should have been a bit re- big red flag for me. I don't know why it wasn't. They said you can make up to fifteen dollars an hour, and I thought that's a king's ransom, <laughs> unbelievable. So um, th- this was in this was in uh, like two thousand and. Six. Okay. No, no, 2007. So that's like $45 in today's money. <laughs> yeah, this is like, this is like, these, these are like Bezos bucks at this yeah. point. I, I didn't really know what this company was. I mean, I knew that it involved being on the phone, but I, I didn't really put two and two together and realize, you know, the full reality of what it was. So um, I got an interview at this place, which, you know, it shouldn't surprise you, was like not very hard to, to, to get. <laughs> um, so uh, I remember, um, you know, I didn't have any money at the time. My dad uh, bought me a suit and I remember not sleeping the night before because I was so utterly terrified of this job interview at this absolutely awful <laughs> telemarketing company. So I had an interview in which we role played as a, you know, I was talking to a customer about some generic thing. And um, yeah, I guess I was so charming and brilliant in the interview that I got I got a job at this direct yeah. marketing company. And then I went through three days of training, which were not unlike the training in the you know episode of The Office. And at no point in this training did anyone actually describe what the job was, which was amazing. <laughs> You're paid for the training. So I would say more than 50% uh, attrition just from the training. Mm-hmm. People would go and do the training just to collect the seven dollars an hour you got for the training like this is people going to the training so they can earn like like thirty dollars and spend like two days at the training and then by the end of the first week on the floor there was like three people left out of like i want to say 30 or something like the the turnover was crazy um and so yeah the first night like of course it was just telemarketing it was for the discover card which um i assume located its office there uh, so they could get around like state do not call us or whatever so the discover card for for those who don't know is kind of um well as i understand it's kind of a credit card for people with low credit ratings so it tends to be used by people with lower incomes and what were we doing well we were pushing something called payment protection which was a god-awful sort of insurance thing where basically you know if certain things happen you could delay not cancel but delay your credit card payments at no point in any of the training was it really explained what this service was or that we were in fact making sales calls at all Hmm. so i didn't really understand when i was first pushing this (laughs) on people if they agreed to it they were going to get billed as soon as they hung up the receiver i didn't even know i didn't know that so the whole strategy for selling this thing which if you worked there and you were a good employee, you not only, you know, you, you believed in it. You know, you were not only, you not only mastered it, but you believed in it. The people that worked there just, uncre- that, that like stayed there for a long time, there were a few people that had been there for years. They were like a little in-group there. You know, I wasn't cool enough to hang out with them. Um, but <laughs> they completely believed in just doing this. They had no qualms about it. Um, I couldn't do it. Well, I especially couldn't do it today, but I couldn't do it then. I, I, I don't know how you can condition yourself. I mean, Uh it's partly out of desperation, I guess. Because the way that you would push this is you had to 
basically keep them on the phone long enough to read this little disclaimer, except you wouldn't really read it. You would sort of apologetically introduce it. You'd say, oh, you know, just to get you on your way, I know you're having a busy day. That was the phrase, we're going to get you on your way. Oh, yeah, or, yeah. Orwellian phrase. We're going to get you on your way. Um, you know, I just have to I just have to read this. Um, I've done it a hundred times today, so don't worry and get it. And you'd just be like, like the people that get really good at it, it was like uh, those people that have mastered like the to be or not to be speech where they can say the whole thing in like a few seconds or whatever. So you just be like, and your card is one of the, and you just, and then the last line in it was something like, um, do we have your approval to process payment protection? You're like, do we have your approval to process payment protection? And you'd say, um, okay, so um, can we can we just get you on your way? And as long as you recorded yeah. that segment and they answered in the affirmative, I guess U.S. law said that they were now, you could now, it was now legal to bill their their credit card. This rings true for me because when I was working at the newspaper and I would have to every other week go out and do like the streeters yeah. where you would ask oh, yeah, people yeah. on the street Torture. A, a question. Yeah. The absolute worst thing I've ever done mm-hmm. in my life. I would have it down to a science where I would go out and say I would have a camera around my neck to announce <laughs> I'm taking your photo Yeah. off the bat and I would say uh, excuse okay let's say it was a really if it was a political question those uh-huh. were the worst. So like let's say Justin Trudeau blackface scandal. <laughs> Because I guarantee if I was working there right now, I would be asking that to somebody on the street right, right. now. What I would do is I would say, um, excuse me, you know, we're just going around uh, asking people, you know, their just, thoughts. Just casual. On, we're just uh, going yeah, around. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we're, we're just. Yeah, yeah. The word we're just, just. Nothing intrusive. Yeah, yeah. Just, you we're know. We're just going around asking. I'm from the Observer newspaper. We're going around asking people, you know, if you have any thoughts on the Trudeau blackface scandal. Um, do, you, do you have anything that you, you have any opinion on that? Mm. Then they say, and then there's a complicated process of then getting them to sign off on being in a photo oh. where you've got to say, you know, that that's a great answer. Um, you know, we'd love to put this yeah, in the, I'm sure exactly. the readers would just love this. Exactly. I'm, you sure, know, I'm sure the readers of the Woolwich Observer will be blessed to read your incandescent insight into you, this issue. And, you know, let me tell you, like, I think you'll be a bit of a folk hero if you say, <laughs> if you say this, because I think a lot of people are thinking what you're, what you're thinking. Can I, uh, can I just... Can I just take your uh, quick picture? And that's when like eight out of ten of them are like, actually, I don't want my picture in the paper. Yeah, guaranteed. I'm not going to sign the waiver. Uh, yeah, guaranteed. And and I'm thinking like, oh, what? Do you think I'm asking this because Do you I, think I actually care about you, your a stranger that I've approached on the street <laughs> with a question that an editor has given me yeah. to ask? Yeah, a question that I would never ask anybody. <laughs> It was actually much easier to get kids for it because everybody's parent wants their kid in, in the, the newspaper. Paper, right, yeah, right, right. But what's hard is getting the kid to talk because <laughs> they're they're stupid. Incidentally, I didn't last uh, all that long at the telemarketing thing. I remember uh, there was one day where I just uh, I just could not go in. I was like, I just can't do it another day. <laughs> um, and I expected to be punished badly for this. Although of course, when I did go in again, they didn't, they hadn't noticed or, or cared. <laughs> the, jo- the job was so, it was so tedious. Like you would get an hour lunch break and there was a food court in the mall. And so, I mean, how much does it cost to buy like a happy meal or whatever? That's what I would get. So that was like over an hour's salary, right? Cause the minimum wage was like less than $8 an hour or something. You got commission ostensibly, but you had to make so many like sales that like almost no one actually like mm-hmm. the rate of action of making a sale like you could do a hundred calls and you might like get one if you were lucky or something um and i wasn't particularly good at it anyway because i didn't want to do what you mm-hmm. what was necessary but i used to find these little ways to kind of like defy the boss um mm-hmm. and i don't mean uh 
unionizing the workplace. I mean, <laughs> figuring out that if somebody at the other end forgot to hang up their receiver, uh, the computer system wouldn't move on to the next call. Um, otherwise, it would just move on automatically. There was no way you could turn it off unless you took a bathroom break. So I would just listen like to these wordless sound poems of just, you know, the background noise in people's houses, them watching the TV and stuff. Someone in like rural Louisiana that I was like, had been bothering, uh, you know, to get them to buy this stupid Discover card thing. And there was no way of, of really of the company knowing that I was doing that. They were monitoring the calls. There was an office somewhere in the building where you could be listened to at any time. Hmm. And people were fired for, you know, like what you were required to do, I think it was up to three rebuttals. So if somebody called, if you called someone and they're like, you know, I'm really not interested. I'm trying to, you know, I really need to uh, put the kids to bed. Like, please don't call again. You have to say, well, sir, but you don't even know what the service does for you. And failure to do that could get you fired as kind of the corporate policy. So anyway, I, I came in to quit. I had this sleepless night. And then they were like, okay, well, we need you to write a letter of resignation. <laughs> so so I, I wrote this like like 700 word like letter, this like op-ed length, you know, at this time I cannot fulfill my, Thank my duties. Thank you for the opportunity. I, I, I hereby resign the presidency. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, I think probably. You don't have old Nixon to kick around anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So then, uh, so I walked out of the office, I turned around and I did the peace, the peace yeah. symbol. Um, and then and then I got on Marine One and took off. Yeah, but no, that was that was an absolutely awful job. And I, I think about it uh, often when I watch The Office, which uh, yeah continues to be one of my favorite shows. Although I think has grown uh, you know ever bleaker as uh, as I get into my thirties. Can't wait to see what it's like in our forties. Now watch this drive. Oh, I'm on my way. I know I am somewhere not so far from here. All I know is all I feel right now I feel the power growing in my head Sitting on my own, not by myself Everybody's here with me I don't need to touch your face to know I don't need to use my eyes to see I keep on wondering if I sleep too long
I feel the power going in my ear. Oh, life is like a maze of doors, and they all open from the side you're on. Just keep on pushing hard, boy. Try as you may, you're gonna wind up where you started from. You're gonna wind up where you started from. Boy. 